Well, welcome everybody to our um, Monday um, evening session for most of us, I guess. Um, we're going to be looking at our fourth, I think it's the fourth class in our series on back to basics, going back to um, what works, <laughs> what doesn't work on a kind of a fundamental basic level in the course, the way Jesus redefines everything, <laughs> the way uh, um, the way the forgiveness works in the course compared to the way it works in the world. That was our first class or second, actually. What is a miracle? Nothing to do with behavior. <laughs> All about perception. Um, I think the last class we did was on healing. And today we're going to look at the uh, preface in the front of the book, which has uh, a lot going on in that preface. <laughs> a lot going on. How's my sound? Testing one, two, three. Okay, good, very good. So yeah, there's a lot going on in the preface. In fact, we're going to spend less than an hour on it. However, <laughs> Wapnick, Ken Wapnick has a whole series on just what it says. The preface is in three parts, how it came, um, what it is, and then what it says. And Ken spends a whole four hours on those, whatever it is, 13 paragraphs or so on what it says. So if you really want an in-depth look <laughs> way beyond whatever, however we're going to scratch the surface today at what um, the preface is talking about, check out um, on uh, Foundation for a Course in Miracles, facim.org, what it says. And Ken has a whole four-hour seminar on that. Um, and if you're, if you're planning on taking the immersion program, we actually send that out. <laughs> in Dropbox as one of the first uh, seminars we listened to from Ken, what it says. Um, so wanted to, uh, let's see, talk about um, the preface with its three parts and the introduction to the course. This is a course in miracles, please take notes, <laughs> that introduction. Um, both of them were written well after the course came along. Of course, it had already been written, taken down, probably even went through some pre preliminary publishing things. But the, um, the preface came along after the course was completely taken down. And the introduction to the course uh, was taken down after the entire course was written. So uh, there's a different flow. <laughs> to both the preface, especially what it says, and um, and uh, the introduction to the course that's not quite apparent in the first four or five chapters in the course. You'll pick th that up as you go for sure. Um, and like on page VII, uh, Roman numeral seven in the preface, he says this preface was written in 1977 in response to many requests for a brief intro to A Course in Miracles, the first two parts, how it came, what it is, Helen Chuckman wrote herself. The how part and, and the what it is part, Helen wrote. And then uh, the last part was written, as it says, by the process of interdictation described um, later in the preface. So, I mean, Jesus gave what it says is what, what Helen's trying to say there. Helen had a love-hate relationship, <laughs> admitting out loud to herself and to everybody else <laughs> that it was actually Jesus <laughs> doing it. 
when she was really mad on him, she would call it it. It said, <laughs> but when she was being nice, it, it, she she called it the inner dictation. <laughs> but everybody knew it was Jesus, especially Helen. <laughs> it's just kind of this uh, passive aggressive thing she had going on with him. Um, so um, let's see. I wanted to uh, read the two things in italics that um, Helen wrote about herself in the first person. Um, first one's on once again on page VII, uh, Roman numeral seven. And uh, Lynn Corona, you want to read that psychologist educator paragraph, please? Just to get a feel for Helen talking about herself in that first section. Alrighty. Helen, the one who received the material, describes herself. Psychologist, educator, conservative in theory, and atheistic in belief. I was working in a prestigious and highly academic setting and then something happened that triggered a chain of events I could never have predicted. The head of my department unexpectedly announced that he was tired of the angry and aggressive feelings our attitudes reflected and concluded that there must be another way. As if on cue, I agreed to help him find it. Apparently, this course is the other way. Any any comments, Lynn, on that paragraph or Helen in general that comes to mind? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just said it's pretty outrageous. <laughs> I mean, to, to think that uh, this is where it all started with two people uh, coming together and um, for once agreeing on something, um, that they both wanted. Yeah, true. In a lot of ways, I think a lot of us come to the course going through something similar, going through a bunch of upheavals and then realizing that everything I'm doing isn't quite working <laughs> and maybe there's another way. And then suddenly you walk in a bookstore and it jumps off the shelf or something similar. Suddenly somebody calls the next day and starts talking about this book you never heard of called A Course in Miracles. But I think all of us, I would imagine all of us have said at some point or another, <laughs> and probably still say it, <laughs> there must be another way besides what I'm doing. Sometimes we say it about the course, like there's got to be another way besides doing this. This is too off the wall. <laughs> like, show me an easier, softer way, <laughs> like they say in 12 steps. <laughs> nope, <laughs> this is the easier, softer way. So, and then uh, once again, uh, let's see, right at the top of uh, page VIII, um, Roman numeral eight, where it begins with, although I had grown more accustomed, we'll do, uh, Lynn Altman, you wanna read that one? <laughs> you have your book? Yeah. All right. Uh <laughs> 
Although I had grown more accustomed to the unexpected by that time, I was still very surprised when I wrote, this is a course in miracles. That was my introduction to the voice. It made no sound, but seemed to be giving me a kind of rapid inner dictation, which I took down in a shorthand notebook. The writing was never automatic. It could be interrupted at any time and later picked up again. It made me very uncomfortable, but it never seriously occurred to me to stop. It seemed to be a special assignment I had somehow, somewhere agreed to complete. It represented a truly collaborative venture between Bill and myself, and much of its significance, I am sure, lies in that. I would take down what the voice said and read it to him the next day, and he typed it from my dictation. I expect he had his special assignment too. Without his encouragement and support, I would never have been able to fulfill mine. The whole process took about seven years. The text came first, then the workbook for students, and finally the manual for teachers. Only a few minor changes have been made. Chapter titles and subheadings have been inserted in the text, and some of the more personal references that occurred at the beginning have been omitted. Otherwise, the material is substantially unchanged. Thanks, Lynn. Any sure. uh, thoughts or comments about any of that that hit you a certain way? I was, what I was really struck with is that even though I have lots of issues with what I'm asked to do, um, it, it doesn't occur to me to stop either. That's like, I may put on the brakes, drag my feet, kick and scream a bit, but, but I'm along for the ride. <laughs> All right. That's good. Thanks. <laughs> I'm sure none of us feel that way, ever. <laughs> That's good. Um, one of the, uh, it's, it's really hard to find any recorded anything by Helen. You know, it, it was, uh, it took a long time for me to actually come across. Uh, and I think this happened in, in probably, uh, I'm guessing 2010 or something like that. It was a uh, 15 minute recorded conversation from a radio interview Helen did was I think it was a, a, a new age kind of interviewer in Chicago and uh, it's a uh, you can you can find it on acim.org and it's um, I think it's just called Helen's radio interview if you put that in you should be able to find it um, I looked online uh, on YouTube, I couldn't find it. But they did have on YouTube another thing that I never heard, which was about a two minute clip by Helen just talking about the course in general. And that was kind of interesting too, but just to hear her voice, <laughs> you know, what help, what this messenger sounded like. And uh, in the in the 15 minute interview, it's, it, it's pretty obvious her resistance came up <laughs> when she was taken down this thing. <laughs> And that uh, she, she had some definite issues. One point she says during the interview, I tried to lose this thing. I'd leave it on subways and somebody would run up behind me and give it back to me. <laughs> I tried to lose it. She actually admits that out loud. It's quite the trip, like any of us would. <laughs> any, any good ego would try to lose this thing. 
I think I've been through at least three or four books. <laughs> I probably lost a couple along the way. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to point out th those kind of things about Helen herself. Um, what it is section, pretty much self-explanatory, just kind of laying out what, what the process in the course is. And then certainly what it says is the most important part. As an opening meditation, before we actually uh, get started with what it says, I wanted to, page one in the text, there's no page number actually, it's the introduction to the course. Like the preface itself, this was written after the course was taken down. It begins, this is a course in miracles. And um, just wanted to kind of read with read that um, and then sit with that for a little while and then we'll uh, come out and approach this what it says section. So this is a course in miracles. It is a required course. Only the time you take it is voluntary. Free will does not mean that you can establish the curriculum. It means only that I can elect what I want to take at a given time. The Course does not aim at teaching the meaning of love, for that is beyond what can be taught. It does, however, aim at removing the blocks to the awareness of love's presence, which is my natural inheritance. The opposite of love is fear, but what is all-encompassing can have no opposite. This, therefore, this course, therefore, can be summed up very simply in this way. Nothing real can be threatened. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. We'll get quiet for a little bit. I'll bring this out. And gently, gently come back. Any uh, questions or anything about just those kind of basics so far? Any thoughts about Helen or questions or? All right. I, I would just like to make a comment, having been around the course for a long time in the school, I'd like to speak so highly of her integrity I mean, she did have a, an, an, an example of integrity that I can trust because even though it was so totally against what she believed and even though she had major judgments about it, she still fulfilled her commitment to follow through on it even though she may have balked along the way. But I think that speaks highly of her integrity and thus her as the, you know, as the vehicle it came through. So I'm thinking Jesus must have known her pretty well, you know. But I, I find that to be, um, I, I find that to be very credible, her integrity. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Kelly. Yeah, thanks. Um, I don't know where I heard this. Somewhere along the line, um, Ken, I, Ken was talking about Helen, and he said Helen had um, 
Helen was having this kind of inter interchange with Jesus, and he basically said thank you to her. <laughs> and and what she thought he meant by that, what she got from it was, thank she was thanking her for doing it this time because he had probably asked her in who knows what previous lifetimes or whatever to do it, and she wasn't quite up for it. <laughs> but this time she was ready and she did it, and he actually thanked her for doing it this time. Yeah. Pretty cool. Go ahead, Bruce. The um, the the phrase "all encompassing" to me is is such a, a powerful magnetic draw. I think for that inner knowingness, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And uh, uh, earlier this year, I was um, doing a little research on the symbolism of the Wizard of Oz, and and I came across that the. the uh, the, the, there's a Latin phrase in toto, meaning it means all encompassing. I thought that's pretty cool. <laughs> so I've been using in toto a lot. with <laughs> the little part of our mind that pulls back the curtain. And so anyway, thanks. In toto too. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Bruce. All righty. I, I focus on the introduction. I try to, to remind me that it, the course is aimed at removing the blocks to the awareness of love's presence and not teaching me love because I have found that I misuse the word love totally and almost 99% of the time that I use the word love, I'm using it as an attack because I'm making one person better than another person. Mm -hmm. So for me, again tells me just focus on what my blocks are and yeah. not focus on quote loving because if I remove the blocks love is there thanks yeah thanks Ellen yeah and, and you know it just I mean we have to I have to kind of point that out to myself all the time <laughs> and remember that this is not a course about love. <laughs> Love's already a done deal. We don't have to do anything. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, offshoots of the Course in Miracles, the Course in Love, <laughs> um, the Way of Mastery, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, all of those, you know, from my point of view, from Ken Wapnick's point of view, certainly from the School for Course in Miracles point of view, don't address that this is not a course about love the way the Course does. <laughs> all those other things kind of get off and running about trying to define what love is, which I think can be really confusing. And it's one of those things as a school for A Course in Miracles where you really stick to this premise that Alan was pointing out. This is a course about removing the blocks, the judgments, everything we're hanging on to internally in the mind, hanging on to the ego as our teacher. Those are the blocks to the awareness that love is already a done deal, that my true identity is a done deal. And we, and we try to stick with that and remind ourselves of that <laughs> all the time. And if you've been to any of our classes, you'll definitely get that gist <laughs> that that's our focus for sure. Thanks. Let's look at what it says. I wanted to relate it as much as possible in the next little bit um, to what what's on the chart. And uh, I, I kind of try to leave most of the chart blank and um, just put in some of these key ideas as each paragraph brings one up. Um, 
I, but I thought I at least ought to draw the lines because <laughs> they would be kind of pretty squiggly, <laughs> worse than they are um, if I if I did it as I went. Anyway, the course talks about three experiences um, in the course. Um, first experience, our 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 true experience, our of our identity as as one son of God in heaven, whatever that looks like whatever that experience of oneness feels like, talks about that experience a little bit, talks about that experience in that first paragraph on uh, Roman numeral 10 and what it says. So heaven, and it's certainly synonymous with the word knowledge. 99% of the time, knowing, uh, knowing something and knowledge is synonymous with an experience of oneness in heaven. It's not the way we define knowing. It's not like Tim knows about the Course of Miracles. It, it's, a, it's an experience of oneness. There's no division in heaven between God the Father and God the Son. Um, so that's that experience. Then it, in the second paragraph, it starts talking about the world. Interesting enough, it drops down to, on the chart, at least, to this level. The world of perception, the world of time and space, the world of seeming birth and seeming death. And it talks about that a little bit. But the place it talks about the most, the experience it wants us to get back to, is this in-between place between heaven and the world, this internal place the Course calls mind, lowercase m-i-n-d. Um, and that's what the Course is mainly about. The choice of teachers, the choice of thought systems within this uh, internal place inside of us. And it's and once again always helpful, especially if you're hearing some of this for the first time, to remind ourselves he's not talking about our brain. He's not talking about all oh, these electrical impulses running be in between my ears. He's talking about this internal place where we actually choose either the ego or the Holy Spirit as a guide, and then we project all that onto the world. And and he'll cover all that as we go through these whatever it is. 13 paragraphs <laughs> so um let's see uh we'll start starts with what it says um the little clip at the end of the introduction nothing real can be threatened nothing unreal exists herein lies the peace of god this is how course in miracles begins it makes a fundamental distinction between the real and the unreal. The real always being our experience of who we truly are in heaven, that oneness. And then the unreal is everything below this top line, everything below the heaven line, including everything that's going on internally in the mind and certainly including everything that's going on in the world. Between the real and the unreal, between knowledge and perception, as soon as we stepped outside of this experience of oneness and played around with that tiny mad idea of separation that Jesus talks about in chapter 27, that we consider what it would be like to be separated from God. Tiny, very insignificant and small, mad, M-A-D, totally crazy, but it was an idea of what it would be like to be separate. So that means that we went from non-duality and experience of oneness to an experience of self 
looking at an idea of separation and how that self seeming self was going to react to it. So that that sort of began the whole ball game of perception. Most of the time when the course is talking about perception, it's talking about the world, what our body's eyes see, what our body's ears hear, et cetera, et cetera, what our five senses are picking up. And the purpose of that always goes back to the purpose. But perception really began when a, a seeming part of us considered something separate from us. In this case, a seeming son of God stepped outside of heaven and considered a thought called separation. What would that look like? What would that feel like? So it was perceiving another idea. There was duality. Duality was born in that moment. So knowledge is truth. Capital T truth could be up here, synonymous with heaven and knowledge. Knowledge is truth under one law, the law of love or God. Capital L, love, capital T, truth, knowledge, heaven. They're all synonymous. Truth is unalterable, eternal, and unambiguous. He's trying to describe an experience of oneness, an experience of heaven, from outside of heaven, which of course is totally impossible. <laughs> That's why he's using not non this it's not, heaven is not alterable. <laughs> he can tell you what it's not, but there's no way he can tell you what heaven is because heaven is an experience. So he goes, heaven is not alterable. Heaven is, you know, it doesn't, there's no time and space in heaven. It's eternal. Heaven is not ambiguous. There's not stuff going on in heaven. <laughs> There's not duality going on in heaven. It, it can be unrecognized, which is certainly what we were hell-bent on trying to do when we stepped outside of heaven, forget we, forget we even were the Son of God and what that experience was, but it cannot be changed. The changelessness of heaven. It's a pretty big theme in the Course. It applies to everything that God created and only what he created is real. And the only thing he created was his son <laughs> and his son goes on extending himself. So, uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot going on in heaven from a world point of view. <laughs> there's just creation, whatever that is. From Jesus's point of view, it's everything. But from an ego point of view, um, I mean, there's not, he says, it applies to everything God created. Well, he didn't, God didn't create anything. <laughs> you know, there's no thing in heaven that he created. He just extended himself as best as Jesus can try to describe it to us. We are his son. We are his one collective son, the son of God. It applies to everything that God created and what only what he created is real. It is beyond learning. It's even beyond the unlearning, the undoing that Jesus is trying to walk us through. It is beyond learning because it is beyond time and process. It has no opposite, no beginning and no end. It merely is. Oh, that's great. That helped a lot, Jesus. <laughs> now I know what heaven is. <laughs> well, you know, how do you describe something that has no words? How do you describe an experience of oneness where you wouldn't want words to even be in that experience anyway. 
It merely is. And then he drops down to the world, the world as we know it, the world of perception, paragraph, the second paragraph. The world of perception, on the other hand, is the world of time, of change. Lots of changes happening. <laughs> Look out, here comes November. <laughs> and not to mention, COVID doesn't seem to be going anywhere right now, only getting worse. Uh, is the world of, ta of time, of change, of beginning and endings. It is based on interpretation. It's not based on facts. Uh, reading stuff like this without realizing Jesus is reinterpreting every word in the course. <laughs> I mean, interpretation from the course's point of view is the way we look at the world through the ego's eyes. The only real fact is in heaven. This is capital F, a good F word. <laughs> this is the capital F word, fact. Creation is a fact. Oneness is a fact. Um, our identity as God's son is a fact. Everything below this line is a non-fact, is a non, it's, it's not real. Does my camera look fuzzy to you or is it just my eyes are going bad? <laughs> Let me let me try to play with it here a second. Definitely fuzzy. Doesn't want to come back. Let me try to unplug it and plug it back. Uh, it's a little bit better. <laughs> I thought I was beginning to evaporate or something. I've been talking about oneness so long, I've been, I started to disappear here. <laughs> it's like, uh-oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> the rapture. <laughs> yeah, or something. <laughs> Something's happening. Flashback from the old days. <laughs> so, yeah. It is based on interpretation, not on facts. The only real fact is in heaven. It is the world of birth and death. Of course, Jesus points out later on all over the place that never born can never die. All this stuff about being born and living and dying and suffering in the world is all made up. It is the world of birth and death founded on the belief in scarcity, loss, separation, and death. Did he leave anything out there? <laughs> that pretty much covers it all. <laughs> so he uses this word scarcity about uh, about 11 times in the course, and two of them are right here in this what it says section. He's going to talk a little bit later about the scarcity principle. And what he means by scarcity is we could actually have an experience of separation from God our Father, and then we're often running being less than, than the son of God. That's the scarcity principle. That somehow I could take what I truly am and make it less than that. And that, that was scarcity, <laughs> scarcity. I scarred my true identity as a son of God and now I'm running around in this scarred, made up, separated, vulnerable self, not connected to my father. So that, that's a scarcity principle, and out of that scarcity principle, it could have been called the tiny mid idea of scarcity instead of the tiny mid idea of separation, that I could experience scarcity. I could experience separation from heaven. 
That's what the scarcity is. And then that gets played out through this whole process of, of eventually projecting onto the world this scarcity. Yep. It is learned rather than given. Go ahead, Bruce. I was just going to say, there's no order of difficulty in, in population density of fear. The scarce city is just the same as the scarce suburbs, right? So that does, doesn't matter. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I knew I forgot this, the scare part. I, I was getting the scar part, but I wasn't getting the scare part. <laughs> That's good. Thanks. <laughs> it is learned. This whole belief in scarcity is learned. We made it up and then we got ourselves to believe it. We taught ourselves to believe it. We went through great, great lengths to teach it to ourselves and learn it. And now what Jesus is trying to get us to do is unlearn all these crazy steps that we took to actually believe ultimately there were a body in a world that can feel pain, that can suffer, that can die. So scarcity, all those kind of ideas is learned rather than given. Given is what is the experience in heaven, whatever heaven is. There we go. Given, um, what's given is is our identity as the son of God. And that identity in heaven that's given can't be taken away. Everything else we learn. And then the way we get back is we unlearn it. We undo it. It is learned rather than given selective, actually seductive, <laughs> selective and seductive in its perceptual emphasis unstable in its functioning and inaccurate in its interpretations. So this world of birth and death that we made up, it, it's, it's um, selective in its, in its perceptual emphasis because we're always on the lookout, on the make to find out who's responsible for all that lack of peace I'm feeling. That's why it's really selective in its perceptual emphasis. It's always emphasizing who's the target, who's the bad guy. What are my five senses not just telling me what I'm thinking and feeling, but what are my five senses telling me about who's robbing me of my peace? That's why it's so selective about the, the perceptual emphasis is on who's the, who is causing me to feel some experience of not peace situation, thing, person, politics, whatever. So it's selective in its perceptual emphasis. I know why I'm upset <laughs> and I can tell you who the cause of the upset is. Um, unstable in its functioning. Well, we know we can be all over the place about that, <laughs> about perceptual emphasis. <laughs> One day it's this bad guy, another day it's this bad guy. 10 years ago, it was a whole different planet. <laughs> and now it's a whole nother planet. <laughs> now it's the new normal, if there is one yet. Unstable in its functioning and inaccurate in its interpretations. We're always trying to lay the blame on somebody else. From knowledge and perception, respectively, two distinct thought systems arise, which are opposite in every respect. So uh, this is kind of a reference later on to what he'll call the wrong mind, ego, the thought system of separation of sin, guilt, and fear, or the right mind.
the Holy Spirit, the thought system of forgiveness, the thought system that that took the tiny mad idea of separation silly as a silly idea, impossible idea. So those are the two thought systems. In fact, these two thought systems, the ego, the wrong mind, the, the right mind, the Holy Spirit, that's all there is. There's really only two thoughts in any given moment going on. And that gets projected onto the world, no matter how much it looks like I'm not really thinking about one of these two thoughts. If I'm, if I'm just going through a normal day and I believe I'm a body, then the wrong-minded thought system is in total full gear and I'm looking for who, who the guilty parties are. So I don't realize I'm the guilty party. And I ultimately real, don't realize I'm the one that made all this up. I couldn't be guilty even if I wanted to. So the wrong mind is all about guilt. The wrong mind is all about sin. The wrong mind is all about selfishness. The, the wrong mind is all about separation. And everything my brain is thinking in any given moment is either reflecting that or it's reflecting this. It's been my experience that when I'm reflecting the Holy Spirit, I'm pretty conscious that I'm not looking for bad guys. I'm willing to see you the way the Holy Spirit does. And, and I'm willing to go through a day or at least a moment that way. That seems pretty conscious. <laughs> That's an active uh, um, uh, conscious thing that I seem to do. And when I'm in wrong mind, I usually just think I'm busy. <laughs> I don't have time for the Holy Spirit right now. <laughs> I gotta get to work. I got, I got to fix my foggy picture on my screen, whatever it is. So, you know, when I realize I can do all that stuff I do in a day from the point of view of the Holy Spirit, that, that's when I begin to wake up. That's when I begin to um, put the emphasis on what really counts in this dream I'm walking through as a body. Uh, let's see. So from knowledge and perception, respectively, two distinct thought systems arise, which are opposite in every respect. This thought system is all about separation and blaming somebody or something for it. And this thought system is all about letting go of believing I could separate in the first place. In the realm of knowledge, no thoughts exist apart from God, because God and his creation share one will. So that's what that's what's going on in heaven. And what Jesus tries to get us to understand throughout the course is that the right mind is simply a reflection of, of that oneness in heaven. Choosing the Holy Spirit, choosing the right mind, choosing to walk through a day with forgiveness is not oneness. It's not love, capital L love but it's, it's at least bringing us back to a point where um, we can move in, in our waking up to back to the experience of heaven. So in this case, what he's talking about, um, these two different thought systems is the right-minded thought system reflects heaven. It's not heaven. It takes us to the gates of heaven is one way he describes it um, even later on in this section. Any questions or anything so far? Any thoughts about this process?
already. What it what it says is was that dictated through through Jesus? You mean what it says? Yes, it was. Yes, correct. What it says was directly dictated by Jesus. The first two sections, <laughs> Helen had fun writing those down. <laughs> The world of perception, on the other hand, however, <clears throat> is made by the belief in opposites, separate wills, in perpetual conflict with each other will and with God's will. What perception sees and hears appears to be real because it permits into awareness only what conforms to the wishes of the perceiver. Now, the bad news is when, when uh, the perceiver, and that's certainly another uh, on the chart. On our normal chart, the perceiver concern would be looked at as not Tim. <laughs> it's not Tim perceiving all this stuff. It's this inner place inside of me that's perceiving the world even myself as a body, through the eyes of the wrong mind, through the ego, um, and not through the Holy Spirit, and vice versa. I, I can see everything that seems to be happening to this Tim as a body and, and, and all, of it, all the drama I go through in a day. I can see that through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying here, what I see conforms to the wishes of the perceiver. And once again, if, if my perceiver is lined up with the ego and choosing the wrong mind and choosing to feel separation and then blame it on somebody else, I'll do that and I won't realize I'm doing it. I'll just take being a body for granted and I'll go do what bodies do. Sometimes I'll be aware of it, but most of the time, probably not. However, when this perceiver, this decision maker that's choosing between either the wrong mind or the right mind chooses the Holy Spirit, then the wishes of the perceiver are to see seeming separate images, but realize they're not real. I don't have to keep trying to find somebody to blame. I don't have to keep finding, trying to find somebody to point the finger at. So... It permits into awareness only what conforms to the wish and wishes of the perceiver, the wishes of my, my inner decision maker, your inner decision maker. Is that inner decision maker, that inner perceiver lined up with the ego or the Holy Spirit? This leads to a world of illusions. If I'm looking at the world through the eyes of the ego. This leads to a world of illusions, a world which needs constant defense precisely because it's not real. And the way we defend its reality is we keep judging all the bad guys in the world and we say, yeah, it's real. Look what they did to me. We don't realize that's the purpose of the world is to stay separate, but put the blame on something external. And the only way I can do that is to believe my just judgments are justified. My judgments say, hell yeah, I know who's causing the problem. Hell yeah, they're real as, as a victimizer. Hell yeah, look what they did. 
I mean, that's what every judgment insists, is not only am I right, but what I'm insisting on is very real, and it makes the world very real. I'm upset not because of some silly inner choice to be upset, but I'm upset because of what the world's doing to me. That's really, really like like one of the key things that, that we, what we begin to hear over and over and over again in the Course. The purpose of the world is always to forget internally what I'm doing and make the world very real in terms of who I think is robbing me of my peace. In here, I go through this process, I'll wake up and realize I'm the one that's doing it. Out here, it just looks like all these crazy things are doing it to me. And they seem very alive and real. I mean, we, when we go into this, you know, yeah, it sounds like a nice thing to, you know, lay down our judgments, lay down the sword. <laughs> but, but the ultimate purpose will be, I'll realize the world isn't real. I start with my judgments. I don't go around saying the world's not real. The world seems very real to me. <laughs> Look what they did. However, once I begin to lay down my judgments of the other guy, sometimes of myself, then what happens is, it, you know, I begin to take responsibility for the way I'm seeing things. And then the world don't look so real. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of what's happening. So that it needs constant defense precisely because the world's not real and the way we defend it is through our judgments. Lessons 68 through 90 are all about all the grievances we hold against everybody in the world so we make the world real. So that we know who's doing it and we insist it's not us. I forget I have a mind and I think the source of my, my peace, lack of peace and the source of my pain is external. That's the way I defend that the world is real. Next paragraph, top of page, Roman numeral 11, XI. When you've been caught in the world of perception, you are caught in a dream. This is where he starts talking, brings in the whole concept that all this stuff is a dream. It's just a, you know, if I believe I'm a body in the world, it's a bad, it's a bad dream. <laughs> it's not just a dream, it's, it's a nightmare. If I believe I'm an ego, separated self in my mind, that's the source of the nightmare. That's the secret nightmare, the secret dream that he talks about in chapter 27. When you've been caught in the world of perception, you're caught in a dream. You cannot escape without help. As, as long as we're in this box that says, wrong mind world, like it just is instant, almost flip sides of the same coin. As long as I think I'm living in this existence of this coin, where one side of it is a wrong mind with the ego dictating what's happening. And then the world is just a projection of that. And I don't know it's a projection of that. I need something outside of that, this box, i.e., i.e. the Holy Spirit to help me wake up. I need to access that voice inside of me that will help me step out of that box and realize that box is made up. So that's what this whole paragraph is about. Is he, he's introducing the Holy Spirit in this paragraph. You cannot escape without help. 
because everything your senses show merely witness to the reality of the dream. We don't know it's a dream. <laughs> we know it's real because look what, what it's doing to me. God has provided the answer. God has provided the only way out, the true helper. It is the function of his voice, his Holy Spirit, to mediate between the two worlds. He can do this because while on the one hand he knows the truth, on the other he also recognizes our illusions, but without believing in them. So when he mentions that two words, two, uh, the two worlds, when he says mediate between the two worlds, it's, it's kind of a preview, a glimpse of the world we think we see and the real world we'll eventually see through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, through the eyes of vision, through, through the hearing of this voice. He can do this because while on one hand he knows the truth, on the other, he recognizes we're in this dream and we don't realize it's a dream. But he knows it's a dream, With, he, he, but without believing in the illusion. He doesn't believe in the dream. It is the Holy Spirit's goal to help us escape from the dream, dream world, by teaching how, us how to reverse our thinking and unlearn our mistakes. This is where the unlearning begins, when we invite the, the Holy Spirit into this process of waking up, into this process of being willing to lay down our judgments, first against our brother and then eventually against ourselves. So it's an interesting thing, reverse our thinking. First, first thing he helps us reverse is, you know, we're sure we're upset for the reason we think. And he's going to reverse that thinking. He's going to show us we're not upset for the reason we think. That that reason's all made up. It's got nothing to do with what's going on out here. The thinking of the world, the thinking of the ego as a body in the world is that I know why I'm upset. The first part of the process is the first step of forgiveness. Maybe I'm not upset for the reason I think. He's going to reverse the thinking on my thinking on what I know is the problem. He's going to show me what the real problem is. So he's going to reverse our thinking and unlearn our mistakes. Forgiveness, first mention of forgiveness, is the Holy Spirit's great learning aid in bringing this thought reversal about. However, the Course has its own definition of what forgiveness really is, just as it defines the world in its own way, just as it defines almost every damn thing in its own way. <laughs> you got to learn a whole new dictionary here. <laughs> he redefines atonement. He redefines sin. He redefines death. <laughs> he redefines resurrection. He redefines you. <laughs> he redefines me. He redefines everything. He doesn't leave anything out. <laughs> everything gets redefined when we start going through this process. The world we see merely reflect, reflects our own internal frame of reference. <clears throat> and this is where he, he starts talking about the mind without specifically using the word mind, what's going on internally. The world we see merely reflects our own internal frame of reference, the dominant ideas, the wishes, the emotions in our minds, the whole story of sin, guilt, and fear we made up. 
the whole story that I, I could actually leave heaven and get away with it. And then I'm off and running with that story. So all those stories, all those wishes, all those emotions around that wish, the guilt, the fear, that's, that's all getting projected onto the world. Projection makes perception. All this stuff we think we're feeling in the world isn't coming from the world. We're not upset for the reason we think. It's coming from this inner choice to believe in all this crazy stuff. We look inside first. In other words, we have this inner experience within us of choosing between the ego or the Holy Spirit, between separation and forgiveness. We look inside first, decide then the kind of world we want to see, and then project that world seemingly outside of us, making it the truth as we see it, believing it's the truth as we see it. If we are using perception to justify our own mistakes, meaning now I see all oh, the problem is in the world. I have a right to be angry. I can justify my anger. Look what they did. I can justify me feeling bad. Look, you know, I've got a cold or I got whatever I got. <laughs> I mean, we start justifying all these mistakes. We believe we're a body and we believe we're vulnerable to other bodies. Projection makes perception. We make it true by our interpretations of what it is we are seeing. We know what the problem is. And it's certainly not something going on inside, someplace inside of me called the mind. If we are using perception to justify our, our own mistakes, our anger, our impulses to attack, our lack of love in whatever form it may take, we will see, we do see, a world of evil, destruction, malice, envy, despair. All this we must learn to forgive. Not because it's real. Not because it did something terrible to us. That's not the kind of forgiveness Jesus is talking about. Remember, he said he's going to redefine what forgiveness is. We must learn to forgive. Whenever I see the word forgiveness in the Course, I always have to put in there, so it makes more sense to me, let go of believing. <laughs> let go of insisting I'm upset for the reason I think. Let go of believing that you're the, you're the, the victimizer. That's forgiveness in the course. That's the first step of forgiveness, is I let go of believing that. I'm willing to experience something else. All this we must learn to forgive, not because we are being good and charitable, but because what we are seeing is simply not true. It's not the reason I'm upset. We have distorted the world by our twisted defenses and are therefore seeing what is not there. We have distorted the world by our twisted judgments. We insist we know where the problem is. Uh, as we learn to recognize our perceptual errors, the error being, I know where the problem is. <laughs> it's just wrong. I perceive, I feel, I taste, I touch, I see, I hear, I know where the problem is. We also learn to look past those problems or forgive them. Let go of believing they are the problem. At the same time, we are forgiving ourselves, second step of forgiveness, looking past our distorted self-concepts. 
this made up self, this ego self that I believe I am, separated from my father. We look past those distorted self-concepts to the true self that God created in us and as us. So capital S self goes up here above the line too. We got heaven, capital S self, knowledge, capital T truth, capital L love, capital S self. And then in the last paragraph on this page, he's going to start talking about sin versus love. There's no sin above this line. There's no sin in heaven. I mean, that, that's kind of obvious. But what isn't obvious and what we try to make happen all the time is there is no capital L love below that line either. There's no capital L love in a dream. This is all a dream made up from here down. Some parts of the dream are good. The Holy Spirit's a good part of the dream. The right mind's a good part of the dream because that part of us tells us it's just a dream and our true identity is still capital L love. But that's here. It's not here. Everything below this line, there, there is no love there. The best we can do is forgiveness. And he says that in a lot of different places. Sin is defined as lack of love. Well, yeah, we stepped outside of love. We left love in heaven. Since love is all there is, our own nothing unreal exists. Sin is all made up. The only thing that's real is love. And it's got nothing to do with this dream. Since love is all there is, sin in the sight of the Holy Spirit is simply a mistake to be corrected rather than an evil to be punished. Our sense of inadequacy, our sense of weakness, incompletion, they all come from the strong investment in the scarcity principle, the tiny mad idea of separation, the tiny mad idea of scarcity that governs the whole world of illusions. From that point of view, we seek in others what we feel is wanting in ourselves, special love relationships. We love, in, we love another in order to get something ourselves. That, in fact, is what passes for love in the dream world. It's talking about special love relationships in the dream world. There can be no greater mistake than that. Believing that love can be below this line. That we can find love here in the world. I mean, we can do a lot of nice things. <laughs> Forgiveness being the number one nice thing we can do let go of believing we are these things that can hurt each other. Let go of believing I'm a thing that can be hurt by you and vice versa. There can be no greater mistake than that, that, that we, this, in, uh, in chapter 15, he says that ego's chief weapon is special love relationship. The chief weapon the, use, the ego uses to keep us stuck believing we're in the world is this special love stuff. Any anything on any of that so far? You can see how he's covering all these, I mean, totally mind-blowing ideas that, we, I mean, if you're just opening this and reading them for the first time, you're like, 
what is he talking about? <laughs> I mean, every paragraph is like, what is he talking about? But then there's this draw. There's, there's like this internal draw to it. Like somehow, I think what he's saying makes sense, but I, I don't get it. <laughs> so he's kind of like holding the carrot on the stick and saying, come this way. And we'll, we'll flesh this stuff out over 31 chapters and 365 lessons. And then on top of that, a whole manual for teachers. And then we'll throw in a couple supplements just for icing on the cake. <laughs> so it takes them a while to take these 13 paragraphs and explain them to us in a way that they actually begin to make sense. Let's see. Then an uh, interesting quote from the Bible, top of page uh, 12, only minds can really join. So he's kind of going to go off on, on minds, minds versus body on this page, trying to point out where he's going, that the mind, this, this internal choice is, is what's really going on, and all of this external body stuff is simply a projection of that. Only minds can really join. And whom God has joined, no man can put asunder. Minds are already joined. <laughs> Our experience is that it seems like we're joining with other minds when we walk through forgiveness. But the point is they're already joined and we wake up to that. But whom God has joined, no man can put asunder. It is, however, only at the level of Christ's mind that true union is possible. The experience of oneness is possible. And in fact, has never been lost. Once again, Christ's mind goes up here with all the capital words capital l love um capital h heaven capital c christ mind capital m mind the little i however the little i the tiny mad idea of the little i <laughs> that i could be a little i the little i seeks to enhance itself by external approval external possessions external love the self the true self that god created needs nothing it is forever complete, safe, loved, and loving. It seeks to share rather than to get, to extend rather than project. It has no needs and wants to join with others out of their mutual awareness of abundance. Everything's already okay. We forgive when we realize there's nothing to forgive. We heal when we realize there's nothing to heal. We actually have an experience of true prayer oneness when we realize there's nothing to pray for we're already okay next paragraph the special relationships of the world which he goes off on chapters 15 16 and 17 are destructive are selfish are childishly egocentric yet if given to the holy spirit these relationships can become the holiest things on earth because they can reflect what our true relationship is internally with the Holy Spirit. Uh, next, the last sentence in that paragraph, each one, each special relationship is then another chance to forgive oneself, let go of believing I'm the sinner by forgiving another, let go of believing you're the sinner flip sides of the same coin and each one becomes still another invitation to the Holy Spirit and to the remembrance of God um, next couple of paragraphs he's going to go off on the body um, 
Perception is a function of the body and therefore represents a limit on awareness. Perception sees through the body's eyes and hears through the body's ears. It evokes the limited responses which the body makes. The body seems to be the decision maker. The mind just seems to be the recipient of whatever the body is going through. The body appears to be largely self-motivated and independent. Yet the body actually responds only to the intentions of the mind. And once again, there's only two intentions. The ego's intention of separation and blame or the Holy Spirit's intention of peace and forgiveness. If the mind wants to use it for attack, the body for attack in any form, the body becomes then prey to sickness, prey to age, prey to decay, because we think we are bodies then that can get sick and will decay and will age. If the mind accepts the holy purpose for the body instead, it just becomes a communication device for the mind. We can share the message of the Holy Spirit. We're okay in spite of whatever seems to be going on in the world. It becomes a useful way of communicating with others, invulnerable as long as it is needed, and to be gently laid aside, laid by when the body's use is over. Of itself, the body is neutral, as is everything in the world of perception. Whether it is used for the goals of the ego, first time he throws the word ego in there. <laughs> Just kind of dropped it in <laughs> in the preface like wh where the hell did that word come from <laughs> he hasn't mentioned ego yet <laughs> the goals of the ego or the holy spirit depends entirely on what the mind wants uh and more on the ego and holy spirit uh go a bit to the top of page 13 roman numeral 13. Christ's vision is the Holy Spirit's uh, gift, God's alternative to the illusion of separation and to the belief in the reality of sin, guilt, and death. Could have easily said sin, guilt, and fear. Everything that's being made up in the mind. It is the one correction for all errors of perception. And then down to the next to the last paragraph. Forgiveness is unknown in heaven. There's nothing to forgive in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. There's no even playing around with the idea of separation in heaven. Whatever the experience of oneness is, there's nothing to be forgiven. Forgiveness is unknown in heaven, where the need for it would be inconceivable. However, in this world, forgiveness is a necessary correction for all the mistakes that we have made. Letting go of believing we actually made real mistakes. <laughs> Letting go of believing that I'm upset for the reason I think. To offer forgiveness to our brothers first and then to ourselves is the only way for us to have it. For it reflects the law of heaven that giving and receiving are the same. Heaven is the natural state of all the sons of God as he created them. Such is their reality forever. It has not changed because it has been forgotten. We forgot heaven, but that doesn't mean it's not still there. So any anything on any of that <laughs> or not? <laughs> uh, 
I, I just, 13. Go ahead. I, I just want to say, you know, I come from a agnostic atheist uh, background and uh, listening to you read this and, and myself reading it and, and having, uh, you know, dealt with the course now for, for a while. Uh, it, 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 it changes my mind because the one point I always go back to in my mind is that there is no way this could have been written by a human mind. There just is no way. And yeah. that just reverses all of my thinking of atheism or agnosticism. Mm -hmm. One of the, I think one of the big feelings we have when we first pick up this book is there's something going on here. <laughs> Lynn likes to describe that like I've never read read anything like this before. <laughs> I don't understand what it's saying. <laughs> I've never read anything that that it's quite attracting me this much. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that sometimes I think you know like. There's no hierarchy, obviously, of, of disillusionment. <laughs> I mean, I was raised in a Catholic family, so I, you know, I like to think it was worse for me coming in to have to undo all my ideas about forgiveness and heaven and all that stuff because of my Catholic background. I, I always think, well, maybe it would be nicer if I came in with an agnostic background. <laughs> nah, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Self-deception is self-deception. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with all this stuff down here anyway. It always goes back to this. I'll use anything in the world to keep me from waking up as a, as a healthy ego, whether it's a Catholic story or it's an agnostic story. <laughs> I'll have a hierarchy of sins. <laughs> I'll make a hierarchy of sins. I'll even make a hierarchy of self-delusion. <laughs> but yeah, thanks, Ellen. Anybody else? Raylene, how you doing? <laughs> No, yeah, no, I'm doing well. I mainly too what I'm hearing the the key thing is is believing that we're not enough and that we're already enough. <laughs> and if we knew that, we wouldn't get all stressed out and confused when things look scary and impossible because we knew we have that answer within us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think that's what the third step of forgiveness is. It's a nice way to describe the third step. When we get there, everything's okay. I'm okay, you're okay. Yeah. Mm. Good, thanks. Shelly Harbin, can you hear me? You got any thoughts or questions? Um, if you can hear me, you gotta unmute your mic if you have anything. Alrighty. So as a closing, uh, Lynn Corona, you want to read that last paragraph? Forgiveness is. <laughs> and we'll get quiet for a little bit. Forgiveness is the means by which we will remember. Through forgiveness, the thinking of the world is reversed. The forgiven world becomes the gate of heaven because by its mercy, we can at last forgive ourselves. 
holding no one prisoner to guilt, we become free. Acknowledging Christ in all our brothers, we recognize his presence in ourselves. Forgetting all our misperceptions and with nothing from the past to hold us back, we can remember God. Beyond this, learning cannot go. When we are ready, God himself will take the final step in our return to him. Thanks, and uh, we'll get quiet for a little bit and let that happen. <laughs> And gently, gently just keep on letting go of believing this is real. <laughs> <coughs> Very good. Thanks, y'all. <laughs> Excellent class, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.